First Thessalonians chapter four. Um, we'll be in verses thirteen through eighteen this evening as we're walking through the text. The title of the message this evening: the Rapture of the Saints. Uh, we are going to speak on a fairly familiar passage this evening. It's a passage which we as a church have often considered, and even not too long ago, uh, when we went through our entire series on end times events, which uh, doesn't feel that long ago. It was actually, I think, started six or eight months ago and went for a couple of months. Uh, but when we began that series, one of the first things we began with was the rapture of the church. And so we were talking about this doctrine, and so we've addressed it not too long ago as far as the scale of, of church things goes. Uh, but we are going to address it again this evening simply because it is what has come up in the text. And it is a um, essential doctrine and it is a most blessed doctrine. So I certainly have no qualms about sharing it again with, with any of you as it is a doctrine that uh, really forms in many uh, ways the, the very hope the, the essence of what we look for, the essence of what we long for, um, the, the blessed hope that we have to come, and a part of that blessed hope, uh, all that God will do for us one day, it, it is initiated with the rapture. It's initiated with the calling of God's saints out of this world. And so it is an exciting thing to speak of. We speak today of this doctrine a doctrine that states that at some point Jesus Christ will return for His church and will catch His church out of the world. And we believe, based upon the authority of God's Word and how we have interpreted God's Word, that this will be prior to God pouring out the fury of His wrath upon the rest of the world, the judgment upon believers and the divine chastening of God upon Israel. And there's a great deal of contention surrounding when the rapture of the church will take place. I will not be going in depth into that contention. We talked about that several months ago. The sermon is still online. Uh, if you need a refresher or if, or if you're interested in that, we will touch on it this evening, but we're going to focus more upon some other elements of what these verses are speaking of, uh, starting uh, not even necessarily with the rapture and the doctrine of the rapture, but finishing up with that doctrine and then understanding why Paul wrote this, what his point was as he wrote this to the church of Thessalonica. And we'll begin there as much as we'll end there this evening, considering the context within which Paul is speaking on this issue. We've been walking through First Thessalonians for some time now, and uh, when we consider the context, remember that he is writing to a church that has been going through great trials great tribulations. They have been going through great persecution, even to the extent of martyrdom. Their faith in a very hostile city, their faith in God in the midst of a very hostile city, if I could be more clear, their faith in God in the midst of a very hostile situation has brought them to a place where they do fear for their lives. Recall Paul and Silas had to flee from this city for their lives. They were even chased by the Jews in this city to the next city. So this is a very hostile city to Christianity. Paul has already spoken of the fact that he knows they've been going through great suffering. And this is an important context for what he's going to tell us this evening. Paul reminds them of the importance of their actions. 
And over the past couple of weeks, recall, we've been talking specifically about their testimony. Two weeks ago, Paul exhorted them through the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8, uh, unto cleanliness, a cleanness of heart and a cleanness of mind, uh, to avoid fornication, that they would learn how to possess their vessels, is how Paul said it, uh, in sanctification, in holiness, that they would not go after sexual immorality or sexual misconduct, but rather they would pursue that which is becoming holiness in their lives. And it was for the purpose, of course, it's because it was the will of God, but also to distinguish to show the difference between a Christian and the rest of the world. Whereas the world is caught up in sexual immorality, it was then, it is today, we as Christians have the privilege of rejecting that which our flesh would desire to pursue for the sake of living a proper testimony of holiness and of sanctification before the world. And when the world sees a group of people who aren't living in sexual promiscuity, who aren't pursuing every lust, they say, wow, there's something different about you. We talked at that time <coughs> about um, uh, how that testimony can be an impact. And it is very true that the impact of one's testimony through sexual purity can be dramatic. Well, then last week we talked about a different element of testimony. And Paul gave the principle, a principle that we see all throughout the Old Testament, that if a person does not work, they should not eat. The idea that we are to take personal responsibility for ourselves, and so we are to labor for our daily bread. We are to labor for our sustenance. That, that Paul gives this not just as a principle that pleases God, but again, as a principle of testimony. Um... Look at with verse 11, as we talked about last week, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So he says, don't be a gossip, don't be a busybody, but rather get busy working with your own hands. That, and then he says in verse 12, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without. So that the people that, that live around you who are always trying to get something for nothing, look at you and say, what's different about you that you are, you are working honorably, that you are earning your living. And we talked about how important that was even for this age, that we show a testimony of those who are, who are willing to be honorable in the way that we conduct our lives so that we are not unnecessarily living off of, of others, but rather we are working with our own hands, that we are not uh, spending our time in idleness, but rather we are pursuing um, uh, that which is profitable for ourselves and for our families. And so that was again about testimony. And this evening, as Paul speaks on the rapture, there is again going to be a concept of testimony that comes into this understand uh, of why it's important that we understand what has happened to those who have gone before us and why we and how we understand what will happen with them at the end of the age or when Christ comes again Paul knows that the Thessalonian believers have gone through a great deal 
He knows that there have been those in their midst who have been persecuted and some who have been killed for their faith. He knows that the Thessalonian believers are greatly grieved for the loss of their family and friends who have been killed. And his concern, as he writes today, was twofold. First, of course, he wants to comfort them. He wants to comfort them concerning their grief for those who have been killed for their faith. But, as I've mentioned, he also wants to exhort them unto joy and hope in the midst of their, sto- in the midst of their sorrow as a natural extension of their Christian testimony among unbelievers. In other words, just as the church had been called to be a good testimony by abstaining from fornication, just as the church had been called to be a good testimony by working for their income in the midst of a lazy and a self-entitled society, so should the church be a good testimony by rejecting the hopelessness that is manifest in the world upon death and embracing rather the joy that comes from knowing that those who have died in Christ will be with the Lord and recognizing as well the hope that we have in our own lives that when we die, we will be with the Lord. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening. Why we have the privilege of living in hope rather than hopelessness when we consider death and when we, uh, as we live in, um, uh, in a world that is filled with pain and suffering and loss in this life. So take a look with me, if you would, in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. We'll read through verse 18. Paul says, I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Christ, in Jesus, excuse me, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that... Uh, We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. Paul introduces his teaching this evening in verse 13 by saying that he does not want them to be ignorant concerning the fate of those who have died already. Now, in this passage, he calls them having been asleep. And that should not throw us. Just as in our culture, we have soft and kind ways to talk about people dying. We say that someone has passed away. In the Christian context, sometimes we might say that he has gone to be with the Lord. In the same manner, uh, he is using a word here and both Greeks and Hebrews use this terminology to speak of those who had gone before. Now, in, in some contexts, people have, have um, added to this idea of them being asleep doctrinal significance. And I'm going to encourage you not to do that as you read the text this evening or any of these texts, adding doctrinal significance to this term asleep. And there's two ways that this is done. The first way is is a very benign way. It's not a problem to think of it this way. The idea in the Hebrew mind that um, recognizing that there would be a resurrection and so recognizing that death was not a final step, it was only an intermediary step to new life. And that's fine. We can see that uh, in, in the Hebrew culture, the idea that um, we recognize that there will be a resurrection and so that death is not, the, is not, it's not a final thing. Death is simply a step into the next phase of living. 
or of eternal life for those who are believers, eternal death for those who are unbelievers. And so that's fine if we want to, to see a little bit of that in the Hebrew culture and, and understanding the resurrection and those sorts of things. But the one that's a little more dangerous is espoused by certain denominations and one of the, the most uh, popular denominations uh, as far as this is concerned is the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. The Seventh-day Adventists espouse a doctrine that is called soul sleep. Soul sleep. And soul sleep is a doctrine that states that the soul and the body are absolutely inseparable. They believe they're, they're what we call dichotomous. In other words, they believe that man is broken up into two different beings. He has the physical and he has the spiritual, but that these two cannot be separated. And so what they believe is when a person dies, their, their soul remains with their body until such time as Jesus returns. So everyone who is dead is now, as it were, asleep in the grave. And one of the reasons why they believe this is because of, of the fact that in the Old Testament and in the New, oftentimes when people are said to be dead, uh, they are called asleep instead of dead. So sleep, um, however, stands in direct contradiction to many scriptures that indicate that our soul does not remain with the body when we die. And I'd like to talk about this for a few minutes as we begin our sermon this evening. Why is it that we would reject the doctrine of soul sleep and rather uh, expect that when we die, our soul will be carried off into a place of waiting for our resurrection? And the first thing that I would like to uh, remind us this evening is as far as our church understands this doctrine, we believe that man is not just broken into a two parts, the body and the soul, but rather three parts, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Some would argue the nuances of this point. I believe that there's some doctrinal, uh, that we stand on solid doctrinal ground as we espouse three points. Those people that just believe that there's a body and a soul and not a body and a soul and a spirit, I'm not going to get into a great debate with them over that. I don't think it's, it's a, a point of super deep doctrinal importance, but we would believe that there is a body, a soul, and a spirit. And let's talk about that a little bit together. The body speaks towards that part of a man that is mortal and Physical, the mortal, the physical part of a, of a man. It is the vessel through which we operate. This is our hands, our feet, our mouths, our, our minds. It's the part of us that grows old. It's the part of us that runs down. It's the part of us that gets sick, that gets tired. And it's the part of us that eventually dies. Uh, this is the vessel that God has given to us. Uh, it's not us, right? When you think of you, your body is a part of who you are, but it's not who you are, right? You have, you, you, you have something deeper than just your external, that when, when someone is going to get to know you, they need to get beyond the external if they're actually going to get to know you, right? Because there's something inside of you, there's something deeper than that. So, so the body is just, it's just the vessel, and regardless of, of what vessel we have and, and, and the parts of our vessel that we may like or that we may dislike, um, it's, it's the vessel that we've been given. And it's the means by which we operate in a physical world through a physical body. 
And so that's the body part, of course. It's uh, soma or sargs in the Greek. The soul, the word soul in, in the Greek is, is the word suke. And this speaks to um, the immortal personality of a person, his emotion, his will, the, the whole person, uh, who you really are, we might say, is oftentimes referred to as one's soul. As I've gotten older, I've been amazed at how I don't think of myself as older. I may start feeling older. My body starts getting the aches and the pains of getting older. My hair is thinning out because I'm getting older. I'm getting more wrinkles because I'm getting older. But I still don't... I mean, my mind doesn't feel older. I don't feel like I'm older. I remember um, when Benjamin was born about nine months ago now, I looked at my wife and I said, do you realize that we're parents of three? I still feel like a child myself. And yet I am a father of three children. And <clears throat> the reason why I, I kind of have to stop and think about that from time to time is because I just I don't feel any different than I did at 16 mentally. I don't, I've learned more and I've matured some, but, but I don't feel like I'm a different person. But when you look at people that are older than you, you, you feel like they are adults, body, mind. But that's not really how it is, right? Our personality doesn't age in the way our body does. Our, our emotions and our will don't age. They mature, they change, they adapt, they, they, uh, those things happen. But, but it's, it's an entirely different idea. I still feel the way I always did. I'm the same person. Regardless of, of whether uh, my body gets old or not, I'm still the same guy. Regardless of, of whether or not I were, if I were to get paralyzed and end up in a wheelchair and, and not be able to speak or whatever the same thing is, that's all happening to my body, but I'm the same me on the inside. Genesis 2.7 tells us that God created Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his body, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So that word soul can speak of, it can speak of individuals as a whole, or it can also just speak of the immortal part of a man. So that word soul is used somewhat interchangeably in scripture, somewhat flexibly in scripture to speak of either the whole person or just the immaterial part of a person. The word spirit in scripture is the word pneuma, and this word, uh, as, as I define it, speaks of the God-aware portion of a man. The portion of a man that relates to worship and communion and divine influence. The portion that is able to commune with God. This part of a man, we might say, is dead in his trespasses and sins. Not that it's not there, but it's dead in its trespasses and sins until such time as our spirit is awakened, enlivened, made alive, by the Spirit of God. And so this part of us, we have no capacity. We know that God is there, but we have no capacity to fellowship, to commune with Him until such time as it is made alive in Christ. And we would see that as the third part of a man, the spiritual part of a man, the part that is unique to man, the part not given to animals, other created beings, but rather given to us in that we have the capacity to worship. We have the capacity to commune with God. And so we would see this trifold division of the body 
and the soul and the spirit, with that spirit being something that is uniquely given to man outside of um, what we would see in the animal kingdom where we know that animals have bodies and we know that they have personalities, right? Uh, they have intellect, emotion, and will, but they don't have that ability to have fellowship with their creator the way we do. And that's what we would see the spirit, the key that unlocks fellowship and communion with God because we are made in the image of God. So practically speaking, we would say man has two parts. He has a physical part and he has a immaterial part, a material part and an immaterial part. But doctrinally speaking, I think there is grounds for us, and we'll see some verses in just a moment. We're, we're not going to dig super deep this evening, but we'll see a few verses. There is grounds for us to see man made up of three parts, the body, the soul, and the spirit. And consider some verses with me as we think about this. Jesus Christ um, tells us very clearly that there is a body and a soul, that there is a material and an immaterial. He says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that is able to destroy both, body, both soul and body in hell. So Jesus calls upon men not to fear other men, his disciples not to fear other men, because all they can do is kill the body, but rather to fear God who is able to also kill the soul, or in other words, also allow the soul to be in perpetual separation from God. And here we see that twofold division of the material and the immaterial. Don't fear the man that can only do to you material damage. Fear, as it were, God who can do immaterial damage as well. But as we move into what we'll, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, but as we move into uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, notice what Paul says in his benediction to the church. He says, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul is desiring to bless these um, believers in Thessalonica, again, we'll, we'll get there in a, in a couple of weeks as we're preaching through it. He alludes to every part of their being by not just using body and soul, not just using the material and the immaterial, but body and soul and spirit, desiring that their body would be presented blameless. In other words, that they would live sanctified lives, that their souls would be blameless, that they would be exercising their emotions, their intellect, and their will toward God, and that they would be doing so as they submit them, their spirit their God-aware portion of them to the Spirit of God and thus allow their spirit to be under that, the influence of God's Spirit which will influence their soul, their personality, emotion, and their will to exercise itself toward God. Can you see perhaps the relation between them? We talked this morning about that plug, how we can plug into our flesh or we can plug into the Spirit of God. We might say that that is our spirit communing with God's Spirit when we're plugged into the Holy Spirit. And then that is um, bringing about in, uh, in our lives the compulsion to do right as we're plugged into the Spirit of God. 
It's bringing about our compulsion to do right. It's bringing about the desire to manifest those things which we call the fruit of the Spirit. And then our, and, and so that is our spirit being imposed upon our soul, our personality, emotions, and will. And then our soul is thus compelling our body into action. In like manner, when we are not living under the control of the Holy Spirit, our God-aware portion is ignoring God, as it were, and compelling our personality, emotions, and our will to do that which displeases God. And then, of course, our soul is then compelling our body to do that which is wrong. And so we see the interplay between the spirit and the soul and the body. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 to 47. In this passage, Paul is speaking about the first Adam, who was the Adam and Eve, Adam, and then what he calls the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ. And notice how he distinguishes between them here. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45-47, So it is written, The first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that which was not first, excuse me, howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven. So Paul gives a, a contrast here between Adam being called a living soul and then the last Adam, who is Jesus, being called a quickening spirit. In other words, the milestone, the capstone of Adam's existence when God created Adam was that God created a living being. He created a man in his own image that was capable of exercising his will. He had personality, emotion, and will. The, the important element there being that he was material. And, of course, he exercised his will against God. Now, the milestone for the last Adam, the thing that matters about the last Adam, about Jesus Christ's coming, when Jesus Christ was on the earth, when he gave his life and he died for our sins, is that he came to make provision for the God-aware portion of man, the spirit of man, to be made alive. To be quickened is the word that's used there. And so man will be able to be restored in his relationship with God. Can, can, as you think about Adam and Eve, and you think about what happened there, can you see the parallels? Adam walked with the Lord in the cool of the day. Adam had a physical communion with God. When Adam rebelled in sin... He lost the ability to physically commune with God, to walk with God in the cool of the day. He was cast out of the Garden of Eden. He lost that fellowship that he had with God. But God promised Adam and Eve that one would be sent that would restore fellowship. And the way that that fellowship was restored was by making our spirits alive, was by quickening our spirits. And so whereas the last Adam was made a living soul, or excuse me, the first Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam is made a quickening spirit. So man is made of three parts. That's what we believe. We're not going to split any churches over it or or do uh, doctrinal pickets or anything of the sort over it. But, but we, we do see precedent in Scripture to see man as a trifold unity. We would be called 
trichotomists instead of dichotomists. The second thing I want to make us aware of as we still consider this idea of soul sleep, is soul sleep a valid doctrine? One of the things I'd like you to consider is that Old Testament saints throughout the scriptures are still considered alive. Old Testament saints are still considered alive, even though their resurrection is yet future. In Matthew chapter 17, we see a good example of this. This is um, what we often call the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And Peter, James, and John were watching, and look what it says in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 3 about this, this event. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up to an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Jesus is transfigured before them, and as he does so, Moses and Elijah appear. Now this is, of course, the resurrection has not yet taken place. This is well before any resurrection. We know from our study of end times things several months ago that the resurrection of the Old Testament saints will not take place until, um, until after the tribulation period. And so when we understand that timetable, we recognize that Moses and Elijah, they've not yet been resurrected. But Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus Christ. This is not the only time that such a thing would happen. In 1 Samuel, we'll get there, um, it'll be a little while before we get to 1 Samuel 28, but when we get there, we're going to meet a woman, she's a witch, the witch of Endor, and Samuel is, or Saul is going to come to her to bring Samuel up from the grave. And as they interact, what we end up finding out is that she is, much to her own surprise, successful in bringing Samuel up from the grave but not his body. Only the immaterial part of him appears. It says Samuel appeared. He didn't walk through the front door. He didn't pop out of the ground. There was no precedent to see that he had a physical body. He was, he, he was visible, but he appeared. That's not something our bodies can do. And he hasn't been resurrected yet, and we know that. Because the only one that's been resurrected was Christ, and he was the first to be resurrected, right? Right? He was the first. And so we see there a soul appearing without a body. We see in, in the transfiguration, souls appearing without bodies. Old Testament saints who are still interactive, who can still perceive. Their personality, emotions, and will are still there. They're still alive. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is speaking and he says that God is not a God of the dead, but God of the living. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. We also see a similar idea in Luke 16. In Luke 16, verses 19 and following, we see a parable of a rich man and then a poor man named Lazarus. I don't know if you're familiar with the parable. Certainly write down the reference if you're not. The rich man... And Lazarus are living, and in this, in, in, in the physical life, in the life that they had, the rich man, scriptures say, fared sumptuously. He, he, he lived it up. And Lazarus was a poor man. The dogs came and licked his wounds. He begged for his meals. 
Scriptures say that Jesus gave the parable that they both died. When they died, he says that Lazarus was immediately carried by angels into Abraham's bosom, that being a place of paradise and rest. And the rich man, he says, was buried. And the next verse says, when he lifted up his eyes from the torments of hell. In the next verse, he was in the place of torment. And he spoke to Father Abraham from that place of torment. There was a great gulf fixed between them, but he spoke to them. They conversed. (coughs) He knew Lazarus was there. He begged Abraham to send someone back from the dead to speak to his relatives so that they would not come to such an awful place of torment. Their bodies weren't there. We know their bodies weren't there because the resurrection has not taken place yet. But something was there. They were there. They were conversing. These Old Testament saints were alive, are alive. And so we consider that man is made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. We consider that the Old Testament saints are still reckoned to be alive and that there was interaction with their souls. Third point, our resurrected bodies will not be our original bodies. Do you remember when we were studying this in 1 Corinthians 15? That our resurrected bodies will not be these bodies that we have right here. Soul sleep advocates the idea that the body and the soul cannot be separated. Therefore, the soul remains with the body perpetually. And yet the scriptures state quite clearly that our resurrected bodies will not simply be our original bodies upgraded. They will be brand new bodies. They will be bodies not fit for this world anymore, not fit for a material existence, but bodies that are fit for a spiritual existence, for a spiritual life. They will be physical bodies, but they will be fit for a very different sort of existence. They'll be fit for eternal life. Now, when we talked about this, it was in 1 Corinthians 15. And there's a reason why, because that is Paul's great treatise. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. Again, if if you want to go back and, and listen to those messages, you'll get a little bit more of the understanding of what we talked about. But we're just kind of hitting the highlights this evening. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.35, But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? That's a good question, right? I mean, people that died 2,000 years ago, they don't have a body anymore. It's decayed. It's gone. People that cremate their relatives, they don't have bodies. It's ashes. It's carbon. It's gone. So what bodies are they going to rise up? Notice what he says. Thou fool, he says. That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. The seed that you put in the ground does not come back up looking like a seed, does it? You put a corn kernel into the ground, it comes up as a stalk. You put a tiny little um, watermelon seed into the ground and it's going to come up as a plant and then it's going to have watermelons. So he, uh, Paul is saying, you're, you're foolish to think that what goes into the ground has to come back out the same way. That, that it has to be fundamentally the same. 
It doesn't have to be fundamentally the same. It, it, it will, in fact, he's saying here, be entirely different. That when you die, your body will go into the ground, but it's not coming out looking like it went in. It's not coming out the same as it went in. You're no longer, you're going into the ground a seed. You're coming out something entirely different, as it were. God doesn't need your body your physical mortal body to give you a resurrected body. Basically what he's saying is stop putting limits on what God can do with you. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the, uh, but the, glory of the celestial is one. The glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of stars, another, uh, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. So it is written. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Here we are again. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So Paul says it's, it's a fundamental misnomer for us to think that that body has to somehow be preserved or that somehow that, that this body matters to us after the grave. It doesn't. Now, while we're on this earth, this body is the temple of the Holy Ghost and we ought to treat it as such. We should not abuse it or damage it and those sorts of things. But this body will not be going with us. This body is a vessel fit for this life. We won't need to inherently, we don't know, but, but will, will we need, as we talked about last time, to, to breathe oxygen? Will we need lungs in, in the, the life to come? When Jesus Christ appeared in the upper room, after His resurrection, He appeared. His physical body could literally appear. And this was His mortal flesh. But it could appear. That means that His body was able to transcend what we now know to be the laws of physics, even though it was His physical body. Because He now had a spiritual body. He had something fitted for a spiritual kingdom, not for this earth. Not for the earth with the physical limitations that we have upon us today. <coughs> and so, the idea that our soul must be somehow imprisoned in this body which is going to decay and is going to wear away into nothingness is short-sighted. It seems doctrinally short-sighted. There's no reason for the soul, for our souls to remain with a vessel that has completely outlived its usefulness. There's no reason for our souls to remain with a body that has no future at all. Fourth and finally, all those who die are immediately ushered into eternity. The scriptures seem to be pretty clear on this. We already talked about Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man and Lazarus both die. The Lazarus is taken to Abraham's bosom, which is a, a spiritual place of paradise and waiting. The rich man is taken to the torments of hell and a place of fire and burning. 
That is, however, Jesus Christ uses parabolic language there. And so some people say, well, he's not even, he's just, it's just a story. It's just a parable because he's using parabolic language. Well, let's talk about Paul's life here for a moment. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul says this. He says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I will not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, he said, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And he goes on to say, But I know what's most needful, and that's to stay here with you. He says, I want to depart because when I depart, I get to go be with my Lord. That is not the writing of a man that thinks he's going to be sleeping for a couple thousand years, is it? That is not the confidence of a man who believes that his soul is just going to sit around with his body until Jesus Christ returns. That is the confidence of a man who says, when I die, I will be ushered into the presence of my Christ. And I am looking forward to the day. On God's timetable, of course. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Paul says this in verses 6 through 8. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. What's he saying there? He's saying that what we desire, though, yes, while we we live this life and while we're in this life, we're absent from the Lord physically, but we're present in our bodies and we get to walk by faith. We have the privilege of walking by faith and not by sight. He said, but there's coming a day and, and we're willing to let that day come when we will indeed be absent from our bodies and be present with the Lord. Soul sleep says there's no such thing as being absent from your body. Paul says we will be absent from our bodies with the slight exception of those who are raptured, which is where we're coming to eventually this evening. So, back to 1 Thessalonians 4. And even in our passage today, we'll see that an important part of Paul's words of comfort is that those who have died in Christ have already gone to be with their Lord. So Paul seeks to comfort them concerning the dead for the purpose that they would not experience or exhibit the same kind of sorrow and distress that the world exhibits because they have no hope and no joy of knowing that their loved ones are with God if they are in Christ. And notice what he says in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. The basis for the believer's hope The basis for the believer's joy is found in verse 14. If we truly accept that Jesus died and rose again, then we can be just as confident that those who have died in Christ, these are those that have died in Christ, are with Christ and will be brought, or that word literally meaning will be led with Him when He returns. That when Jesus comes, those who have died in Christ are coming with Him. They're coming with Him. They couldn't come with Him if they weren't with Him to begin with, could they? So they are with Him. Paul says they are with Him. Those who have died in Christ are with Christ. Verse 15, For if we, <coughs> excuse me, for if we say unto you, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent 
them which are asleep. Not only will Christ bring the souls of the dead with him when he comes, but verse 15 tells us that they will receive their resurrected bodies even before you will. That they will be a part of the resurrection, that they will experience the resurrection before you, before you will, you being those who are still alive and remain. If Jesus Christ were to come tonight, those who are dead in Christ will be the first to experience the resurrection prior to those who are being raptured out of this world. And that's what the word prevent means. You see that, that they which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent. That word literally meaning to go before or to proceed. That's what um, it would mean in the King James English to prevent, to go before. So we who are alive and remain will not go before, will not proceed those who have already died in Christ. And then as we get in verses 16 and 17, Paul presents an order of events here. Let's look at that order of events. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The return of the Lord begins with Jesus Christ descending from heaven as a loud trumpet sounds. As Jesus descends, the Bible says those who are dead in Christ, those who died and accepted Christ as their Savior before death, this is only referring to the church age here. This is not the Old Testament saints. This is those who died after Jesus Christ's resurrection and have accepted Christ as Savior. They will rise first. They will receive their resurrected bodies. That's what that idea of rising means. They'll receive their resurrected bodies first. Now remember, their souls are coming with Him. Verse 14 said that Jesus Christ will bring them with Him. So as they are descending... The trumpet sounds, the Lord returns, they are descending, Jesus is bringing the souls of the dead in Christ with him, and they will then receive their resurrected bodies at that point. And then they'll be a part of the welcoming party for everyone else. Following the resurrection of the dead, believers who are alive on this earth, Paul says, will then be caught up, taken out of this world to meet the Lord in the air. Literally, there, they will be caught out of this world to meet the Lord on their way up, perhaps. They'll be, they will receive their resurrected bodies. And then we will join those who are dead in Christ, all with resurrected bodies. And the scriptures say that at that point, we will never leave the Lord again. We will never again have to spend our days and our nights separated from the God of our salvation. And we typically call this doctrine the doctrine of the rapture. The word rapture is not found in the Greek. The word rapture is not found in the English. The word rapture is actually taken from a Latin translation, rapture, and uh, that's where the word comes from. But it does well describe what's happening here. A catching away of our bodies, a physical and immediate catching away of those who are alive at Christ's coming. And this is, in fact, one of two raptures that the Bible speaks of. In this passage, we see the promise that God will catch away believers. But we also see very clear teaching in the Bible that reveals when Jesus Christ comes to set up his kingdom, unbelievers will be caught up and taken away. And believers will remain. 
And so I'd like us to reconcile these two teachings together. This is something that you may never have thought of this way, those of you that have heard my teaching before, likely. But in Matthew 24, Jesus says this, beginning in verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days... Excuse me, that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not, until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. There shall be two in the field, and the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Now, many people see this as a rapture passage, the rapture of the church. It is not the rapture of the church. And how we know that is several fold. The first thing is that this is at the end of Jesus Christ's teaching on the tribulation. This is after he has poured out his fury upon the earth. This is at his second coming proper. And so either this is, if this is the rapture of the church, then the church goes through the tribulation. Or, This is not the rapture of the church. You say, well, pastor, why are you so convinced? Why doesn't this just convince you that the church will go through the tribulation? Why are you convinced that this is not the church that's taken away here? That this is the unbeliever that's taken away and those who are are righteous in Christ or those who, who believe on Christ will be left. And the reason why is because of a parable found in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, 24 to 30, Jesus Christ gives the parable of the wheat and the tares. And this is what he says. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? Tares are weeds. He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? Should we go pick up all the tares, all the weeds? Should we pull them out? He says, No, 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 don't do that. He says, Lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. I don't want you plucking up the wheat when the tare, when you pluck up the tares. So he says, Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that point, everything will be ready for harvest. The wheat will be strong. And then you can pull up the tares without hurting the wheat. And that's what he says. He says, in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first, what? The tares. And bind them into bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Take the tares away, then bring the wheat together. In this parable, the tares are taken away first. And then the wheat, and and the wheat is never taken away, is it? The wheat is gathered together. And the meaning of this parable Jesus gives, starting in verse 36 of Matthew 13. Look what he says. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into his house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of the world. 
The Son of Man shall send forth His angels and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So we see a promise of the wicked's removal and the righteous will remain. Well, pastor, now we've got a problem. Paul says the righteous will be removed and the wicked remain. Jesus says the wicked will be removed and the righteous remain. What's going on here? Well, we can either see great contradictions in our Bible, which we know cannot be. As we typically say, when we find contradictions in our Bible, we know that the problem is not God's word. The problem is our understanding of God's word. And so it's not a problem with the Bible So what we understand here is that we are looking at two different events. One where the Lord removes the righteous. Another where the Lord removes the unrighteous. And this is not a problem for us because we, as we study out the fullness of what God is doing at the end times, we recognize that the tribulation period is not for us. The tribulation period has nothing to do with the church of Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. And so what we do is as we compare Scripture to Scripture, we find this seven-year period called the tribulation at the end of this age. And that period at the end of this age, according to the Scriptures, has two definitive purposes. The first purpose is to chasten the nation of Israel back to God because they have rejected their Messiah. And God has told them, that he will redeem them. And they've rejected his redemption, but he will not be thwarted. Remember, we were talking in Sunday school this morning that even Abraham's sin could not thwart God's purposes. Israel's sin will not thwart the reality that God has promised them redemption. And so God has to bring them to their knees to bring them to a place where they're willing to accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And the seven years of tribulation are intended to do that, to bring Israel to a place where they finally recognize Christ. But secondly, God is going to pour out His wrath upon the world for their unbelief. Chastening Israel back to Himself and pouring out the wrath of His, uh, His wrath against the world for their unbelief. Now, as we consider those two purposes of the tribulation, let me ask you, does the church need either of those? We have already accepted Messiah. We don't need chastening. We stand before God blameless and unreprovable in His sight. We don't need chastening. So, we don't need to be there for the chastening. How about unbelief? Well, we know we don't need that one. We've accepted Christ as our Savior already. There's no purpose for us in the tribulation. And so it stands to reckon that as Paul is writing to the church of God, he says, hey, guess what? There's coming a day when you'll be caught out of this world. That the righteous will be caught out of this world. And that will happen before the seven years of tribulation. Because we have no part in the tribulation. There's no reason for us to be there. God says that He has saved us from the wrath that is to come. We don't need to be a part of that. He will deliver us from that. However, in Matthew 24, Jesus is not speaking to the church. He's speaking to Jewish disciples. And he's speaking to them of the end of the world when he physically returns again. And as we consider that, as we consider that second event, this is what will happen when Jesus Christ comes to 
physically restore his kingdom. At the end of the seven years of tribulation, Jesus will return to set up his kingdom. And the scriptures say when he does, now the first time, the scriptures say we'll meet the Lord in the air, right? He's not going to come all the way down to the ground at the rapture. He's going to come in the air. We're going to meet him in the air. But when his feet touch the ground, that will be for destruction. That will be for the final judgment. And at that time, that's when the battle, the armies will have met in Armageddon and they will come against the Lord and the Lord will deliver Israel and he will destroy these armies with the word of his mouth. And that is when he will catch the unrighteous out of this world, send them to the fires of hell. And as the parable of the wheat and the tares says, then the righteous will shine like the sun. They will be gathered together from the earth and they will be brought into the kingdom of the Lord and they will continue physically into the kingdom of God. And that group will have already been resurrected, but that group will go into the kingdom as mortals. And they will be the ones over whom Jesus Christ will rule and reign in, in faithfulness to his promises that he would rule over Israel in a physical kingdom. And so it all fits together when we compare Scripture with Scripture. I'm sorry, I, I can't give you all the Scriptures tonight, but we, we did it not long ago. So listen to those messages if you need a, re, a rehashing on them. And uh, those, those messages would help you. And so <clears throat> this is why we see what we see as far as this is concerned about the rapture. And by the way, this is why it can be called comfort. There wouldn't be a whole lot of comfort for me if I knew I had to live through those seven years of tribulation. Those, it's going to be an absolutely devastating, awful time. And even worse, and that, that's just for the unbeliever, it's going to be even worse if you call yourself a believer because now the Antichrist is hunting you down. Now you cannot borrow, sell, or buy because you have to have the mark of the beast. Those that are loyal to Christ will, will face a terrible time in those seven years. But Paul says these are words of comfort. And that was his intent, to bring comfort to the hearts of the Thessalonian believers, that they would see their loved ones again, that their loved ones would take part in all the joys of Christ's return. But perhaps the greatest of these verse, uh, comfort of these verses is the reminder that death is dead. And I say this because, you know, many of us in this room cannot... Um, don't have much expectation for our family to be there on that day. For those who have gone before us to be there on that day. I have grandparents who, as of now, will not be there on that day. And so there's not a great deal of comfort in thinking about who will be there. Uh, but there is great comfort in the reality that this will be the outworking of all the promises of God that I have by faith accepted. That though perhaps there is sadness in my heart to know that some of my family will not be there because they have not accepted the truth of God's word as revealed through His Son Jesus Christ, it does not change the fact that I stand redeemed in Christ. And our sadness over our loved ones should compel us to tell them should compel us to plead with them to accept the truth of Jesus Christ. 
But there is comfort in knowing that on this day, whether we're dead and we meet the Lord uh, and He brings us with Him or we're alive and we meet the Lord in the air, we will ever be with the Lord. Death has no power over us. When death overtakes our physical bodies, Christ will shroud us in life for eternity. This comforts us in persecution because we know that regardless of the physical suffering of our bodies in this life, regardless of the physical limitations that our bodies have, death has no power over us. To die is to step into eternal life. That regardless of our persecution, the worst a man can do to me is kill my body and send me to be with my Lord. Now, it is, of course, we always precursor anything about that by saying, as um, we need to in this age, that we have absolutely no right to take our own life. We have no right to speed up the process of meeting our Lord. That God chooses when we live or die. And it is the epitome of selfishness and pride to think that I know better than God when I should die. That is me saying, God, I know better than you do. And we never want to be in a place where we're telling God we know better than He does. So though we long for that time when we are not there and for the extent to which we are not with Christ, we know that He has a reason for us to be here on this earth. And there's comfort in that as well. So take heart, we who believe. Be comforted, we who believe. Do not approach death as would an unbeliever. Do not mourn in hopelessness as would an unbeliever mourn in hopelessness. Allow your Christian testimony to extend all the way to the grave, knowing that in Christ your physical vessel may be destroyed, but your spirit, your soul, the immaterial part of you will live on in communion with your Savior for eternity. Let's pray.